Welcome to Africa Calling, a weekly Africa-centered podcast on news and features from around the continent by our correspondents throughout Africa. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of the Africa Calling podcast on January 29th, 2021. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. We'll be hearing about the top stories from the African continent, analysis from African experts, and reports from the field. We'll get the latest on the fighting in and around Bangui, the capital of the Central African Republic, in Darfur, Deposed Sudanese President Bashir's ugly legacy is rearing its head again as fighting continues. We'll hear more from our analyst on this. Plus, we'll speak with our correspondent about how Liberia's president envisions pulling the country out of its current economic crisis. And from RFI's Houses Service, we'll speak about how Nigeria's Buhari has promoted Northerners as security chiefs to try and root out Boko Haram up north. And finally, from the Gambia, our correspondent goes to the border town of Farafeni to find out why groundnut farmers prefer to sell to Senegalese traders. But first, a short recap of this week's news. Democratic Republic of Congo lawmakers on Wednesday approved a motion to force out Prime Minister Sylvester Ilunga Ilunkamba, who was considered a loyalist of former President Joseph Kabila, paving the way for a pro-President Felix Tshisekedi prime minister. Security forces in Uganda have withdrawn from around the home of presidential challenger Bobby Wine after holding him under arbitrary house arrest for 11 days. Tunisian riot police turned water cannons on protesters outside parliament on Tuesday after nights of demonstrations by youths who clashed with police against inequality and police abuses. Burundi's ruling party has named hardliner Reverien Ndukurio as its new leader of the CNDD-FDD party. He hails from the hardline wing of Burundi's regime, which has been accused by human rights watchdogs of brutal and long-running abuses. Find us on your favorite podcast platform app, including iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. In Mali, the authorities dissolved the CNSP this week, the National Committee of Salvation for the People. It's the group created by the military who overthrew President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita in August. The regional body of the Economic Group of West African States, or ECOWAS, who mediated after the coup, demanded that the group be disbanded as part of the conditions for the new government's legitimacy. Malian officials dissolved the group just before President Banda's visit to Paris to see French President Emmanuel Macron. Chogwa Maiga, president of the Strategic Committee of M5 RFP, an opposition and civil society umbrella group, says he doesn't trust the former military junta. The most important thing the most important thing is that although the military junta has loosened its grip on the institutions, we are not reassured by their way of doing things. It's not democratic institutions that are doing this. Today, citizens are prevented from demonstrating. They are arrested and detained. And so we are going to be extremely vigilant. Africa Calling. From the Central African Republic, scattered fighting has been reported throughout the country as the government's state of emergency continues. 
Rebels had tried to block major road arteries into Bangui, the capital, including in the city of Buao in the west of the country. Clashes on January 9th and 17th led to armed groups entering the area, which is considered a major supply corridor. Violence and looting caused humanitarians based in Buao to suspend their services. French Africa Service correspondent Charlotte Cosset was in Buao and spoke to people like this man who had been robbed. The rebel armed groups have taken all of my telephones. They threatened me a bit. You give them what you have. If you don't, you know what will happen. They'll beat you. Another man who didn't want to be identified explains how life is in the city. Not everyone is used to seeing this. People walking around town with guns in this sort of situation. But these are the difficulties. And besides, since they started here, they didn't bother people. They just patrolled. And they were there with their leaders who commanded them. They didn't bother people at first. But at the moment, I see that they don't have the money to buy their food. And then they have to rob people. They take phones. They also take motorcycles. It's happened a number of times in the neighborhood. Men are not the only ones affected by the lawlessness. There's also a number of cases of rape. This 14-year-old, speaking here in Sango, said she was raped by a number of armed men. She says, While I was fleeing, I was grabbed by these men. One man was wearing a red sweater. They carried a weapon. They told me not to scream. The sister of this girl said that there are many more rape cases, the number's too numerous to count, and many girls and women are too scared to come forward. RFI's Houses Service on the line. We turn now to the Houses Service in Lagos. Nigeria's President Mohamedou Buhari has named a new team of military chiefs this week in a move that follows years of criticism over the government's handling of the war against Boko Haram and bandits in the north of the country. The president had been ignoring calls for change in leadership of the armed forces, as many, from private citizens to military experts to even Nigeria's National Assembly, had called for better security chiefs. We have Bashir Ibrahim Idris from RFI's Houses Service in Lagos to bring us more. So, Bashir, we want to know, what triggered President Mohamedou Buhari to sack his military chiefs now? Was it a specific event or an attack, or was this a long time coming? I think it has to do with the culminating of issues that has to do with the Nigerian situation. You know, the, uh, the service chiefs has been on for over five years since the arrival of President Muhammadu Buhari as president of Nigeria. At the initial stage, there were gains recorded by the military, especially when it has to do with the issue of Boko Haram and Bantritri. But later, there was a resurgence from the Boko Haram terrorists or government that have triggered more attacks in the northeastern part of Nigeria. And again, the issue of armed banditry at kidnapping as well as uh, cattle rustling within the northwest has also become a visible issue in the Nigerian security contest. These were some of the reasons that made several Nigerians including retired military experts, to demand for the replacement of the service chiefs. But the president often ignores such calls, even the ones coming from the National Assembly, until he decides on his own to do away with them. 
Now, these military chiefs have been immediately replaced. What do you know about them? Do they have any experience of working up north or do they have ties to the north? Yes, absolutely. When you look at the current chief of defense staff, his name is Major General Loki Rabo. He was the main brain behind the successful operations of the Nigerian military when Buhari came into power in 2015. Then he was the theater commander in Meduguri, and he led the operation that secured most of the local governments uh, from the hands of the bandits, the Boko Haram bandits in that area. So his announcement as the new chief of defense staff has elicited uh, happiness and even celebration from the, those living within the northeastern part of Nigeria. And I know at a point, the new chief of army staff was also a theater commander in Meduguri, fighting the Boko Haram war, even though he didn't stay long, but he was able to capture five Boko Haram commanders and kill several others. So looking at these antecedents, I think uh, there is a kind of relief from many Nigerians that probably these officers coming at this point in time may take the war further than expected. Mm, and, and it seems that Rear Admiral Awal Zuberu Gambo is actually from Kano State, so that's also a positive. Yes, apart from the uh, Gambo from Kano, the, uh, the Chief of Army Staff is from Meduguri, uh, is from Sokoto, and at the point he was a theater commander also in Meduguri fighting Boko Haram. So the war is not new to him. On the other side of this, it seems that the People's Democratic Party, or the PDP, the opposition, has also jumped on this announcement, calling for the government and the Economic and Financial Crimes Commission, or the EFCC, to look into allegations of corruption and diversion of funds for weapons from these guys who resigned or were fired. One of the major complaints from many Nigerians were inability to provide the military with enough equipment to prosecute this war, which has been going on for over 10 years now. And there are complaints that the National Assembly has been approving all budgets that has to do with the, the war. So the question is, where is the money going? Where are the equipment missing at the war front? Why are the soldiers complaining? So these are the reasons why some Nigerians were calling for prop into all dealings that has to do with military procurement for this exercise, the Boko Haram war, and also other security expenses that has to do with the Nigerian security system. That was Bashir Ibrahim Idris, editor in our Houses Service in Lagos. As Buhari was making a sweeping change in the top Nigerian security positions, at least 30 people were kidnapped and 12 others killed in a series of attacks carried out in the early hours of Thursday in northwest Kaduna State, according to eyewitnesses. Check us out on Twitter, Africa underscore underscore calling. We're at Africa underscore underscore calling. We now turn our attention to Sudan, specifically Darfur. In mid-January, hundreds of people were killed in clashes with violence between different tribes. RFI's Daniel Finnan talks to a Sudan expert about how this all fits into the withdrawal of the UN peacekeeping mission. At least 250 people were killed on the 16th, 17th and 18th of January in Darfur. 
And according to the UN, some 123,000 people fled the outbreak of ethnic violence. Attacks took place around Cridding Camp in West Darfur, spreading the next day to South Darfur's Garida locality. Clashes saw fighting between Masalit and Arab communities, as well as Falata and Reziget tribes. All of this comes amid the withdrawal of the joint UN-AU peacekeeping mission in the region, UNAMID. For some analysts, this violence is the result of years of playing different tribes off one another during the rule of deposed President Omar al-Bashir. We spoke to Suleiman Baldo, a senior advisor at The Century, a non-profit organization based in Washington, D.C., working on conflict. What is the background to this intercommunal violence? Why are these people in West and South Darfur at odds? As a matter of strategy in fighting insurgencies in Sudan, uh, Bashir regime militarized the tribes, particularly in Darfur, where the largest challenge was from the Darfur rebel movements. Over 30 years, major tribes were armed trained by government army, and they were allowed uh, to have uh, their own militias. So there is a sense of autonomy for each particular group. Some of these militias were actually integrated into government operations, counterinsurgency operations. The most infamous among them, you know, the cluster of groups known as the Gangaweed. All of these militias are still out there. And when there is a localized friction between members of different groups, the militias spring to action and you have large-scale battles. And that's why the impact is, uh, you know, horrific on local communities. Authorities in West Darfur State say they've approved a security plan and the government has deployed troops to the region. How well-placed do you think they are to deal with these clashes? When Sudanese authorities say that they have deployed Sudanese security forces to West Darfur, it doesn't mean there was a void in West Darfur of security forces, except that when security forces are locally recruited, they become part of the infighting and fight for the side of their uh, ethnic group. And therefore, for example, elements of the rebel support forces who are locally recruited in West Darfur Uh, have joined other uh, militia and armed people from pastoralist groups of Arab origin to attack the displaced from the Masalid group, members of regular forces who are from that group, uh, then fought back to protect the displaced. Therefore, the government has to send in reinforcements of forces that are not from the region, because those in the region uh, are compromised by their own ethnic affiliation, and they are on both sides of the, uh, uh, of the conflict. Do you think this could have been avoided if we think about the recent withdrawal of UN peacekeepers? This is a reaction to the withdrawal of UN peacekeepers, the UNAMI peacekeeping mission, and also a direct reaction in my mind to the signing of the Yuba peace agreement between the central government in Khartoum and the Darfur armed movements. You know, in Darfur, we have, you know, uh, layers of tensions and conflicts between local groups. One of them is over local resources, access to water, to grazing lands, 
problems arising from uh, pastoralist groups destroying uh, farming uh, lands of, of uh, settled uh, farmers. A second layer is from political movements that are fighting government forces to claim more authority, more share of the national wealth for the region. And then there are competitions among the major ethnic groups over local control of uh, the region of Darfur or the federal states in Darfur and, and, and at all layers of government. The peace agreements between the government and armed movements address only one layer. And what you need actually is social peace. This has yet to happen and it hasn't happened. And that's why you are seeing an, an intensification of the violence in Darfur. Suleiman Baldo there from the Century Human rights groups have previously documented inter-ethnic violence at the Kridding camp in 2019. In the last few days since this interview was recorded, we've also seen reports of more clashes in East Jabal Mara bordering north-south Darfur. Correspondence Call Liberia's President George Weah says the COVID-19 pandemic has had a lasting effect on the growth of the country's economy in 2020. During his annual State of the Nation speech to the legislature this week, the pro-poor former footballer proposed a number of economic policies and reforms intended to address the worsening economic situation. Correspondent Darlington Porkba has more from Monrovia. The Liberian economy is in crisis with the banknote shortage and not a lot of money coming into the country in terms of investment. Has President Weah announced how he's going to get out of this crisis mode? The president proposed several policy reforms to the legislature. Uh, he said are uh, intended to revive the nation's economy. And he talked about Liberia benefiting over 48 million United States dollars from the International Monetary Fund for public sector governance. The president also requested the legislature to approve the printing of new banknotes in order to replace the existing banknotes in circulation so that to resolve the liquidity challenge. The president urged Liberians to mitigate or to migrate to e-banking service, such as mobile money, to reduce the demand for physical cash. Hmm. Now, he said that more than 90% of Liberia's currency is outside the banking sector. What policy prescription did he outline to ensure that new money is printed and doesn't end up in private vaults yet again? The president spoke of a reconstitution of the border governance of the Central Bank of Liberia, he also wants measures in place where the depositor will have limited time in the banking hall to withdraw cash from their various accounts. And he also wants the banking sector, especially commercial banks, to stop restricting people on how much they should be able to withdraw from their various accounts. So the president wants all of these measures put into place so that he can be able to boost confidence within the banking sector. Because as you speak, as he said, over 90% of the country's currency are all outside the banking sector making it very impossible for the Central Bank of Liberia to institute monetary policy. Now, he mentioned agriculture as a way to improve Liberia's economy, but did he give any concrete measures to help the average rural Liberian in this? The president was actually not delving it. All he said was that uh, it is not time that the country can focus its direction towards the agriculture sector so that they can be able to boom the nation's economy. He said Liberians should be able to go back to the soil because they have the resources, they have the soil here. They should go back to the soil and invest in the soil, be able to grow what they eat and eat what they grow. But many people are still waiting on the president to be able to say clearly 
in terms of resources, how much is this government will be allotting to the agriculture sector, how much local farmers, for instance, in the rural areas will be able to benefit from the president or the government in terms of seeds, farming tools, and what have you. So those are key areas many people are waiting on the president to see in the coming days whether or not a legislation will be submitted to the national legislature for enactment so that the agriculture sector can be able to take its shape. Now, despite mentioning a number of these measures, the opposition was surprised how he avoided speaking about a number of issues. You've spoken to the opposition. What did they say to you about this? Opposition figure Alexander Cummings of the collaborating political party said he expected the president to provide more measures, especially in the areas of unemployment, to ensure the unemployment rate is actually reduced because since President George Weah came to power in 2018, the issue of unemployment rates has been very high in the country. So opposition figure Alexander Cummings said the president actually didn't touch much on job creation. So that was some of his disappointment. He also talked about direct foreign investments from the government side. He said the president needed to explain exactly what policy measures are in place to ensure that uh, Liberia can attract direct foreign investment to be able to boom the national economy. Additionally, he said the president... Uh, she have provided more information or clarity on how the country's debt portfolio grew from 1.28 billion United States dollars in 2019 to over 1.58 billion United States dollars in 2020. He said, on a year, the debt of the country has grown so exorbitantly, so he expected the president to have provided more clarity and the alleged failure on the part of the president to explain the whereabouts of the 20 billion local currency that was printed in 2016 to 2020 among others, are areas the opposition leader said he was actually disappointed when he listened to the president. Now, as he hits the halfway mark in his presidency, do you think Weah still has support? What are people telling you? On the overall, Liberians are hopeful. Many people you speak to them on the streets of Morovia or parts of the country, they are actually concerned about the issue of the economy. As it is, many people are unable to send their kids to school. There is no job. So most of the people are actually waiting to see what practical steps the government of President George Weah will institute in the coming months to ensure that the issue of the economy can be resolved so that when people get to the banking sector for money, they can be able to get their money on time and not wait for three, four, five or six days or even one week to get money from the banking sector. That was correspondent Darlington Porkpa in Monrovia. In other related news, Gabriel Ilongima Masakwai, a Sierra Leonean man, has been charged with war crimes and crimes against humanity in Finland for his role in Liberia's civil war two decades ago. He's accused of rape, murdering disarmed soldiers and civilians, and recruiting child soldiers between 1999 and 2003 when he held a senior position in the Revolutionary United Front, a Sierra Leone rebel group that fought in Liberia. Reports from the field. In the Gambia, President Adama Barrow recently concluded his annual nationwide tour that included visiting groundnut markets and speaking to farmers. Agriculture contributes about 33% of the small West African nation's gross domestic product, of which groundnut is the highest contributor. But the Gambian economy is losing out due to low pricing and a new blight. Gambian farmers are selling their groundnuts to Senegalese wholesalers who generally pay premium price. Correspondent Sally Jang reports from Farafeni Market in the Gambia to find out more. Tons of groundnut have been sold to Senegalese wholesalers in the Gambia, especially in most of the villages on the border of the two countries. 
Gambian farmers often complain of lack of support from the government and the inadequate price offered. At government purchasing centers, where they sell their wares to the government agents, there are few granules available for sale unlike previous years. Farafenya is a provincial town in the country's North Bank region. In the town, Farmer Fofana manages a government-owned purchasing center there, locally called Seco. The center used to purchase between three to 400 tons of granules. This year, he is not so of even reaching 100 tons for sale or export. There are some failures in this year's trade season because the 23,000 Dalassi, or around 440 US dollars per ton, doesn't seem a good price to farmers. That's why most of them took their groundnuts to Senegal, or the Senegalese will come here to the farms or houses and buy them at 52 cents per kilo, while we are buying at 44 cents. That's the difference. Last year we bought up to 300 tons, but this year we couldn't get 70 tons, and that really shows that we have a failure on our hands. That's about 52 cents per kilo, 8 cents more than what the government is offering. A farmer, Yoruba, said he had a bumper harvest this year like many other farmers. According to him, most farmers would have loved to sell their granules to the government agencies. But the price offered is not encouraging. Uh, decision is somehow fair, but definitely the price is low. The price, that's the only problem. Hadn't been the price is okay, all Gambian farmers will sell their groundnuts to the governments. I know that. I need to support my country in terms of development, and our best resources here is groundnut, but the price is low. While most farmers prefer to sell to the wholesalers, some are still selling to the government. Binta is one of them, who is at the government purchasing center. I needed money and selling groundnuts to the cooperative has more benefits than selling to those coming to our homes to buy it. Selling here is better for me. I brought two and a half bags of groundnuts and I was given another one and a half bag to bring along. Gambia Food Processing and Marketing Corporation is the government agency responsible for pricing of groundnut every harvest season. At the beginning of this year, the price for a kilo of groundnut was at about 0.40 cent. However, during the president's just concluded nationwide tour, the price was increased to 0.44 cents, following a public outcry that the initial price offered is inadequate. In Farafenye, a famous weekly market locally called Lumo in Wolof attracts businessmen from both Gambia and Senegal. Although the Gambia is a major granite exporting country, it is gradually losing that status due to aflatoxin, a newborn crop disease that emerged in 2013 and still exists today. Agronomist Ibrahim Anjai from the Granite Corporation in Banjul explains how aflatoxin affects granites for human consumption. It's a byproduct of a fungi called Aspergillus flavus. So uh, it is born in the soil. The crop, when it is maturing, if there's any hairline crack on the pot, it can intrude in it. And if the conditions are favorable, it can develop. It can also happen during post-harvest, when you don't quickly dry your nuts, when you don't pick it, you know. There must be some good uh, post-harvest technique to prevent it from happening. Aflatoxin is carcinogenic. It can cause liver cancer. 
in human. It can contaminate ground, it can contaminate maize, coos, and etc. So in the Gambia, well, it, it's been widespread, you know, uh, and the toxins are high in some areas. The Gambia no longer exports groundnut to European markets due to aflatoxin. Most of the country's foreign exchange in the agricultural sector comes from Asian markets. While the Gambia used to export more than 6,000 tons of groundnut worldwide, it now exports less than 1,000 tons. For now, the groundnut farmers at the Lumo are trying to make the most of their harvest. They have bills and school fees to pay, and they hope that government groundnut prices will go up and aflatoxin will be eradicated. Reporting for Africa Calling from Farafenye, this is Salajeng in the Gambia. Africa Calling, produced by Radio France International. We're almost at the end of our program, but we have music maven Alison Hurd in the studio. Hi, Alison. What song do you have for us? Hi, Laurangela. Well, listen, any excuse to listen to the wonderful Salif Keita, the, mm. who's sometimes known as the golden voice of uh, West Africa. He's such a legend, isn't he? Yes. Always threatening to retire, but he's still singing <laughs> at the age of 71, and he's very young at heart. He features on this song. It's by the French singer Erwan Seguillon who goes by the name R1. He invented what's known as a rap musette, if I may say slightly, melodic version of rap. That was 20 years ago. And Keita joins him on this song. It's called Des Humains, or Humans, and it's from R1's album La Gouache. Now, the song has quite a poetic side, as you will hear, but it's also got an angry edge to it. The two of them sing about how the world is being dehumanised by war, money and screens. Uh, the video, by the way, is worth a look. Um, it was shot in the Malian capital, Bamako, and we see Keita in full combat fatigues, a radical change from the traditional boo-boo costume that we're used to seeing him in. I hope you like the song. Oh, great. Thanks for listening to episode 15 of Africa Calling. We'll leave you with Salif Keita. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. This episode was produced by Daniel Finnan, edited and recorded by Erwan Rome and Nicolas Doro. Goodbye for now. Le monde est violent, se vide du vivant. Les gens à grand rivés sur écran, hypnotisés comme des morts vivants. Mutants dépités, déportés sur bateau, des maths pétrifiés devant la défaite annoncée. Les yeux violés, d'images vilaines, devant ta variée, l'âme délavée dans la lessiveuse de billets. Chaque jour qui vient, un nouveau phare s'éteint et rejoint le chemin qui mène à l'autoroute du pantin. Des humains, des humains, des humains, des humains, des humains, des humains, des humanisés. Des humains, des humains, des humains, des humains, des humains, des humains tétanisés. Des humains, des humains, des humains, des humains, des humains, des humains, des humanisés. Des humains, des humains, des humains, des humains, des humains, des humains tétanisés. Avalé des values au gré des marées qui ramènent les corps sur les barbelés. Des armées sans hommes avilisent des humains sans âme dont la flamme s'est diluée. Le monde se lisse, hisse les parvenus au sommet d'un palais qui s'est vidé. Des humains désœuvrés amassés dans l'impasse face au gouffre qui s'ouvre sous nos pieds. Des humains, 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 des humains. Des humains, des humains, des humains, des humains, des humains, des humains tétanisés. Des humains, des humains, des humains, des humains, des humains, des humains, des humains Des humains, des humains, des humains, des humains, des humains, des humains tétanisés.
façon qu'on se fait sous le pied. 